Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies on the New Books Network. I am Jingyi Li from the University of Arizona. Today, our guest is Dr. Glenn Wally from the University of Oregon. Glenn researches and teaches about popular literature in early modern Japan. His new book, Eight Docs or Hakkenden, Part One, An Ill-Considered Jest, is the first English translation of one of the most popular long-length novels from the 19th century Japan. It was published by Cornell University Press as a volume of the Cornell East Asia series. So welcome, Glenn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so your research focuses on popular literature in the early modern period, uh, so the 18th and 19th century, I assume. So how did you come to study Japanese literature and why popular literature in particular? Uh, I guess that's kind of a, I guess there's many ways to answer that. I, I first started studying Japanese literature, I guess, because... Um, because I went to Japan. So I had always been interested in literature and I was an undergraduate English major. And then after my sophomore year of college, uh, my father got transferred to Tokyo and we went to Japan and I lived there for a few years, took some years off of college and taught English in Japan and learned the language and uh, just really got interested in Japanese culture from that point. So I switched over to, to I guess, to, uh, wedding my new interest in Japan to my old interest in literature. Um, as for popular literature, um, I mean, these days it seems kind of pretty obvious to study Japanese popular culture. It's a really popular field. Um, this is going to make me sound old, but when I was an undergraduate in the you know late 80s, early 90s, popular culture studies weren't really that much of a thing yet, and Japanese popular culture was not all that well known in the West yet. Um, so I was kind of attracted to it as something that was different and that not a lot of people were doing. Uh, but that seemed much more relevant to what I had experienced actually in Japan. So I guess that's that's one way to think about it. Okay, and why why the why the I guess uh, eight dogs uh, we we will talk about later from the 19th century. What parts of the 19th century um, interested you? So I guess that's a continuation of the the last question. So when I was an undergraduate. Um, I was, you know, already interested in contemporary Japanese popular culture, and I was a big fan of the novelist Murakami Haruki, and I still sort of am. But I had an undergraduate uh, professor who um, was researching Meiji literature, and he uh, basically he acquainted me with the idea that there was popular culture in the 18th and 19th century, um, in the late Edo period. And he directed me to a couple of articles, one by Peter Kordinsky that I remember reading, that really opened my eyes. And I was just fascinated by the idea that we could think about a concept like popular culture or mass culture, popular fiction, in the pre-modern period. And that sort of planted the seed in my mind. And I, I uh, you know, as I went on through school, I got more and more interested in thinking about um, thinking about how we can describe early modern culture as popular culture. That's awesome. So can you tell us more about this book then, um, Eight Dogs? So who wrote it? When was it written? And 
since the title says part one, how many more parts are there and how many volumes were there in the original Japanese work? Yes. So, Eight Dogs, uh, the Japanese title is Hakkenden, was written by a fellow named Kyokute Bakin. That was his pen name, of course, uh, who lived from 1767 to 1848. Uh, and the book itself was serialized over a long period of time. He started publishing it in 1814, and he wrapped it up in 1842. So almost 30 years of his life he spent on this. Uh, and it's, as you might guess from that, it's a very long book. Um, he published it in installments that averaged about one a year or one every two years. Um, I think I counted up once 17 total installments, but the original was divided into nine volumes. Um, so discussing the length of this is really kind of difficult because in, in the beginning of the serialization, each installment was one volume and it consisted of 10 chapters. But after a while, the publishers uh, wanted him to wrap it up, but he had more story. So when he got into volume nine, um, he just kept making volume nine, part one, part two, part three. So volume nine is as long as the first eight volumes put together. Um, and he kept telling readers, I'll wrap it up next year. I'll wrap it up next year. And it kept going on and on. Uh, so the original, we could think of it as 17 installments or nine volumes, 180 chapters. Um, of that, this part one, um, or what, what I've published as part one in translation, is the first 14 chapters. It's the first installment of the original plus part of the second installment. Um, and if I'm able to keep going publishing the translation, I plan it to be eight volumes total. Uh, wow, that's very impressive. I mean, it was, it was must have been a really popular work back then, and uh, I hope it becomes uh, another a popular one after 200 years. <laughs> I hope so too, yes. <laughs> So was long-length fiction um, popular like this, like this kind of length? Was it very popular around this time in Japan? Who were the main audience? It was very popular. And in fact, uh, you know, this is his longest work, and it's the longest work of Japanese fiction. But he wrote two or three other books that were about half this length, which is still pretty long, and lots of other works that were maybe a quarter of this length. Um, so yeah, long serialized fiction was really popular, um, and it was true of relatively difficult works like this one, and it was also true of really accessible, super popular works. Um, there's a, a variety of illustrated fiction called Gokan that Michael Emmerich, for example, has written about, and others. And these also, um, it was very common for these to go on in serialization for many years at a time. Uh, dozens or perhaps even in some cases hundreds of chapters. Um, so yeah, long serialized fiction was really popular from the early part of the 19th century, really into the late part. That's uh, really yeah, that's really cool. the The book market must have been really prospering back then. Yeah, and that's that's the way, or at least one way to think of it is that we have. Uh, uh, I guess we talk about a publishing industry and a distribution infrastructure that are 
made to support this, as well as a readership that that has learned um, to expect this sort of thing, right? I mean, just like you know, watching a TV series or uh, starting a series of movies today, right? I mean, you get as an audience member invested in this with the expectation that more is going to come, right? Um, and this is why everybody is angry at the author of Game of Thrones because he keeps not producing the next book, right? You're invested in this with the expectation that the next year is going to bring another volume the year after that. And so the fact that that a, a work like Eight Dogs could be serialized over this length of time means that publishers are willing to make this investment year after year. Um, booksellers and book lenders are able to get the book to the readers who want it throughout the country. And readers can trust that this is going to be an ongoing arrangement. Um, so yeah, I, this is what I like to tell my students. It says so much about the, the reading public at the time and the milieu of publishing. So um, I, I, I understand this might be a very difficult question, but how would you best summarize the plot of this entire series? <laughs> uh, so the thing I learned about working on Eight Dogs one of the first things I learned is that it's impossible to say anything short about this really long book. Uh, any plot summary tends to become a, a book in its own right. Um, at its most basic level, it's the story of eight samurai with the word dog in their last name. So Inu. So it's Inuyama or Inuzuka or Inuzaka. And they are all... Uh, half spirit brothers kind of reincarnations of the same uh, of, of spirits from the same mother and father and the, the story basically follows them as they gradually meet each other learn that they have this shared sort of spiritual heritage and then they go to all join uh the service they're all samurai and they all enter the service of the same daimyo or samurai lord uh in awa um However, none of them come up in part one. So part one is like the prologue to this, and it concerns their parentage. So part one is about essentially a girl and her dog. So a girl named Princess Fuse or Fusehime, who is the daughter of this samurai lord, the Satomi lord. And uh, he has a faithful dog who... Uh, basically does a good service for the domain and demands the Lord's daughter, Princess Fuse, as his wife. And there's a lot of drama surrounding this, but she essentially, it's a, it's a dog-human marriage story, which is kind of a fairy tale pattern that goes way back in East Asian lore. But part of the, the genius of this author is he decides to take it literally as a novel and sort of think through, you know, in a, in a kind of fantastic way, what the ramifications might be of being betrothed to a dog and how one might handle that and what dilemmas might that pose. Uh, that's, that's, that's the first point. So it's kind of how these eight dog warriors come to be. And then the future volumes will, will trace the adventures of these eight dog warriors who are basically the, the children of Princess Fuse and the dog. Well, that sounds, sounds like a great hook already. Um, so in this part in the part one, you also translated the prefaces to the book, the original prefaces by Kyokute Baking, and there are two of them, one in Chinese and one in Japanese. Why would there be a Chinese preface in a Japanese fiction 
what was the relationship between Chinese and Japanese fiction around this time in early modern Japan? That's a great thing to focus on. Um, so one simple answer to why there would be a Chinese preface is that, you know, as you know, Chinese was a prestige language for scholarship um, and for all sorts of literary pursuits in this period. And so lots of authors, you know, even if they were writing a collection of essays or something like that, might throw a little bit of kanbun or, or literary Chinese into their work to kind of give it a sense of prestige, a sense of class. Um, so in some ways, we don't need to look any farther than that. But it turns out that for the yomihon, which is this genre of extended fiction, the relationship to Chinese models was super important. So um, this particular genre of fiction was self-consciously modeling itself after the great Chinese vernacular novels, such as The Water Margin Shui Yuzhuan, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, Journey to the West, things like this. And so kind of at every level of the work, from general outlines of the plot, to specific turns of phrase, to the style of illustrations, to the chapter titles, which are kanbun couplets, usually. Um, everything is patterned after works like The Water Margin, Shui Huchuan. And so that's another reason why there's a Chinese preface. It's to kind of further give readers, I like to think of it that it's trying to give readers the illusion that they're reading a Chinese novel that just happens to be written in Japanese and set in Japan. But it's trying to give them this feeling of the exotic. Um, the, the yeah, Exotic is really the right word because it would have felt um, simultaneously familiar and strange. Uh, so that's what's going on. And Eight Dogs itself is very openly an adaptation of The Water Margin, Shui Yuzhuan. Um, it's a very creative, very distant adaptation. It's it's not the kind of adaptation where if you are familiar with the original, you could predict what's going to happen in Eight Dogs. But after you've read it, you would think back and realize, ah, I see what he's doing. That's very clever. I didn't expect that, but it makes sense. Yeah, we actually had an interview um, in December last year with Dr. William Hedberg on right. the water margin. So for our listeners, if you want to, uh, if you want to uh, see what eight dogs uh, referred to when Kokuto Bakken was writing it, you can go back to our episode back in December last year to take another look. But so in your introduction to the translation, you mentioned that um, moral teaching is an important element in this book. Could you perhaps elaborate on this point a bit more? Um, did it have anything to do with the Chinese fiction, the water margin that Bucking was learning from? It had everything to do with that. Um, so in China and in Japan, the writing of fiction and the enjoying of fiction had always been under sort of a cloud, right? You know, the, the, the respectable things to read and write would be philosophy history, you could get away with poetry, but the writing of fiction, both from a Confucian standpoint and from a Buddhist standpoint, was at best kind of a waste of time and at worst morally uh, suspect because it's lies and it's leading people astray, right? Even just the idea of entertainment for its own sake was suspect, but the fact that you're doing it through lies, through making up stories that are not real, is, is just in morally dicey territory. And 
you know, fiction isn't the only form of popular culture that has to do this, but it has to excuse its existence through this veneer of didacticism. You could say, well, it's a lie and it's entertainment, but I'm 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 teaching a moral lesson. I'm helping people to understand right principles, and therefore this excuses what I'm doing. Uh, and this was so. This was kind of generally true of many forms of popular culture. Kabuki theater does this as well. Um, but specifically, Bakin is taking his his formulations, um, you know, the language that he uses to describe his his didactic intent, his slogans for didacticism. He's taking them from Chinese fiction and also from the playwright Li Yu. Um, his one of his favorite phrases is Kanzen Choaku, and this is the phrase that is synonymous with Bakin uh, to promote virtue and chastise vice. Um, and this. The formulation of this seems to be traceable back to Lee, somebody who Bakin was very familiar with. So he's he's uh, concerned with this both on a general level because this is what you have to do to make a space for yourself as a creator of popular fiction, but also because it's part of the lineage of the Chinese vernacular fiction that he's so interested in. And in fact, I, I sort of get into this in my monograph, but part of what he's trying to do with Eight Dogs is to wrestle with the the moral failures of the water margin. The water margin is, as everybody who's read it will agree, it's a tremendously entertaining work, but the heroes are kind of nice people. They're kind of murderers and outlaws and thieves. And, and that's kind of what we love about them and a modern audience. Maybe we can just enjoy that with no guilt, but that's difficult for a pre-modern audience living under a heavy Confucian regime to wrap their heads around with. And, and critics both in China and Japan we're wrestling with this for a long time. And Bakin is kind of in this mental debate with Jin Shangtan, who's this famous Chinese editor of The Water Margin, whose work Bakin knew was kind of responding to. It was a one-way conversation, but he was like debating Jin Shangtan in his own mind about how we can read The Water Margin as a work of moral fiction. And if, if it has problems, how can I fix those in Eight Dogs? So... It's very important. Now, this guy, Bakin, sounds like a very interesting and complex figure. So who who was he? What did he do? He was a professional writer. So he was born into the samurai class, but he drops out of the samurai class at a young age. Um, his family is such low rank that there was no future in it for him. And he was a really restless guy. And as a teenager, he drops out, wanders around the city of Edo, trying his hand at various professions before settling down to become a writer. And um, up until his generation, writers of popular fiction in Japan had either been kind of amateurs who did this on the side uh, just for fun, or at best, they would get paid but you didn't really, it wasn't a profession, but he decides, uh, you know, he needs to support himself and he loves to write and he decides he's going to make a go out of it. He's very interested from a young age in how might one actually support oneself as a writer. And he and um, Chipencha Iku, who's the author of uh, Shanks Bear or Isa Kurige, are kind of tied for the position of being the first professional author in in Japanese history. And there's debates about just how much, but basically he's, he's that, he's a writer for the rest of his life. And he writes a tremendous amount and he's very proud that he's able to 
get paid well enough to support himself and a wife and a couple, you know, a kid and a very modest existence, but, um, but he, he does this. And so he's just writing all the time, writes just hundreds of various things. Like, I don't think it's possible for any one human being to read everything he wrote. It's just a staggering amount. Um, uh, and that's what he's best remembered for is, you know, primarily eight dogs, but several others of his works were extremely widely read during the 19th century. Some, uh, still adapted into to Kabuki theater and other things today. Um, and this, this is him. He's just this towering figure of letters of the 19th century. Now you mentioned something curious. Um, so you said that Bucking, before Bucking at least, that uh, writing fiction wasn't quite a profession that one can um, live on. But now that Bucking and I assume a, a bunch of other popular writers, they're doing, they're writing fiction as their way of living. How does that, um, how does that fit into the uh, forms of entertainment in early modern Japan? And more curiously, how does one fit moral teaching into entertainment? Why was it necessary? Uh, wow, lots of interesting things to, to think about in that question. Um, where it fits into the larger world of entertainment, um, I guess I'd say that popular fiction ends up being in some ways comparable to something like the theater or the pleasure quarters in terms of, um, I guess, an escape from daily life. Right. So when we talk about popular culture of the late Tokugawa period, um, we're talking about either physical spaces or imaginary spaces that people would, would go to to um, you know, indulge their imagination, to imagine a way of life or a, a sort of texture of life that's different from the ordinary, all the things that we might associate with popular culture, right? an escape from the everyday a space of fantasy, a space to overturn the social order, a space to challenge the social order, maybe a safely contained space, maybe just a place to let off steam. Uh, you know, the Kabuki Theater is in some ways the most visible. The, the licensed prostitution districts are in other ways the most visible. Um, and you can argue that popular fiction, the popular publishing industry is another realm in which people sort of uh, escape, um, you know, the everyday into a world of imagination and a world of fantasy. Um, within the world of popular fiction, the Yomihon is not actually the most popular in terms of sales. It's extremely influential, but this other genre I mentioned, the Gokan, these, these um, heavily illustrated pieces of fiction, you could sort of in some ways compare them to a, a comic book because the narrative is you know, fused um, image and text. Those circulated even more widely than the Omihon and were aimed at a more general readership. Um, but taken together, this whole um, realm of fiction was part of this larger popular culture and worked in much the same way. Um, so that was the first part of the question. I think I forgot the second part of the question. What was the second part of the question? <laughs> um, why, why are these? Why are these fiction? that's meant for entertainment, why do they have a didactic theme? Ah, okay. 
Right. Yeah. Well, so part of that I sort of alluded to a moment ago that it's a necessity, right, to excuse their existence, right? So one reason why you start to see didactic themes is um, because this escape from the social order or this potential realm in which you can, at least on an imaginary level, challenge the social order, of course, is not something that the authorities are terribly fond of, right? Um, and so they are often looking for excuses to contain or crack down on or eliminate or control these sorts of spaces, physical spaces or, or mental spaces. Um, and one way to get the authorities to turn the other way or to accept your existence is to pretend to have this moral dimension, right? So you can, like the Kabuki theater does this all the time. It's it's really telling stories about sex and violence and indulgence and play, but it's pretending or it's putting an overlay on the top where this is actually a story of a, you know, a filial son avenging his father or, you know, uh, retainers avenging their lord. It's got a moral overlay, uh, and so really it's teaching a good lesson, so you need to let us exist. So so part of it is, you know, some people call it camouflage or, or a veneer of acceptability to to um, to excuse the other things that are going on. So so part of it's definitely that. We find didactic content pretty much everywhere in popular culture of the period for much the same reason. Um, but um, that's not to say that it wasn't Sometimes at least sincerely felt, you know. I think the the um, the camouflage idea, or the that kind of carries with it the implication that readers really didn't pay any attention to the moral lessons, and and authors weren't serious about this. And in some cases, that's no doubt true. But in other cases, probably readers, you know, I mean, we're talking about very basic notions of good and evil, and very few people are going to come out and say, yeah, I'm evil. I don't like good, right? I mean, that doesn't happen. And so probably, to a certain extent, readers welcomed being reminded of these things as long as it was entertaining. And another way to look at it is, you know, for, for someone like Bakin, and he wrote a lot about what didacticism meant to him and how to do it. It's partly about giving readers a satisfying story, right? We like it when the good guys win. We like it when the bad guys are punished. And what is that if not a moral lesson, right? You see somebody behaving badly in a TV show, but if they get punished at the end, we feel satisfied. And that's, that's in a sense, a didactic moment, right? Or when, when we're rooting for a heroine because she has the right moral qualities and then she triumphs in the end. We, we feel a satisfaction to that, and that's that's didacticism in a way, right? Even if the narrator isn't coming right out and saying good triumphs, bad is punished, that's the narrative logic of didacticism. And that's that's the kind of thing that Bakin was thinking about as well. So he's also, in other words, pretty openly positioning didacticism as a way to tell a good story, to a way to make sure that readers are satisfied by what they read, which is, of course, going to make them buy more books. It's it's good good sales, too. That's quite interesting. I guess, in a way, it's the early modern form of cliche ending, like like we see nowadays in Hollywood yeah. films, except for Shang-Chi, which was great. But so uh, what kind of audience would go about to buy his books or rent his books, I guess, in this case? Mm-hmm. And especially with a dog, since it's so long, what um, what kind of 
people were reading it? And so how were they what, reading it? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So uh, this is this is not an easy question to answer, as I'm sure you know. Any discussion of audience for pre-modern fiction is, you know, we're we're sort of guessing. We're trying to uh, triangulate based on, on indirect evidence. Um, and this is why I keep mentioning this other form, the Gokan. You know, I, I almost conceive of the Yomi home, of which this is an example, um, as kind of a, a twin, or um, it, it exists in dialogue with this other form of fiction, which is much more plebeian, much more heavily illustrated. Um, and I, I, I like to think of them together because they're, they're done by the same people. Bakin wrote lots of those himself. Um, published by the same people. Read, in some cases, by the same people, but in some cases, they're catering to different audiences. So the Yomi Home, I think of it as kind of middle-brow fiction. Um, that is, it's it's the language is challenging enough that a really elementary reader would probably have some difficulties with it. We're, we're looking at a readership that's got at least a certain level of education, uh, which implies probably a certain level of financial means, um, as far as books go, they were pretty expensive to buy. Some people did buy them, but more likely they were mostly bought by these lending libraries or book rental libraries. So most people were probably borrowing a copy from a book, a book lender, a traveling book lender or a local book lender, um, which is not to say that the book didn't have a penetration into a broader audience. We know of early modern reading practices, for example, that sometimes there would be communal reading, right, where one person might read a text aloud while other people in the household are listening to it while they're doing chores. And this was probably the kind of thing that was read in that location. So it, the story probably reached an audience beyond the people who were actually sitting and reading it. Um, repeatedly in the pages of it, he addresses his audience as women and children. Um, this is often assumed to be just a conventional thing, again, because fiction was not something that a respectable gentleman was supposed to be involved with. Writers always pretended that they were only addressing women and children, um, but that doesn't mean that the audience didn't include women and young people. So it's difficult to know, right? I mean, I know that he was cultivating an educated male audience because he has some surviving correspondence. So lots of letters that he wrote back and forth with some educated male readers out in the provinces that would write very um, sort of perceptive critiques of the work, send it to him, and he'd respond to them. Um, so some scholars assume that the audience was predominantly male. I don't think we can discount a female readership. Um, beyond that, it's kind of hard to say. Since you mentioned that he got feedback from his uh, friends, I'm curious, how was this book or how was this whole series perceived back then by the audience or by Bucking's contemporary writers? Did they mostly say good things about it? Was it even a thing that they comment on each other's works? You know, that's a really good question. And I wish I had an answer to that. I've... I know things that Bakin says about other writers, but I have not, to be honest, looked much at what other writers said about him. So he he wrote lots of letters, he wrote journals, he wrote lots of little essays that he would circulate privately where he got very nasty about some of his contemporaries. He's sort of famous for dissing all of his contemporaries and thinking 
nobody nobody is as intelligent as me. Nobody writes as well as me. Um, so that thing hap- that kind of thing happened. I, I'm not as familiar with what they might have said about him. Uh, so that's a really good question. Uh, you might want to edit this out because I don't have a good answer for it. <laughs> well, it's fine. I mean, if one day we discover letters written by other writers, maybe they said really nasty things about backing as well. I would not be surprised if they did because he was kind of a nasty person in some yeah, ways. Yeah, he was. <laughs> now, this whole series was published over the span of 28 years. How does this story reflect the social changes that happened during this 28 years? Yeah, I've been thinking about that question since I saw your list of potential questions. And um, that, too, I don't have as clear an answer as I would like. You know, So we go into projects in grad school with a set of research questions. And this was actually the research questions that I started with way back as a PhD student. I wanted to think about the effects of serialization on the story. That is how he might've been responding in real time to, to social events or social trends. And that ended up being one of the things that got backburnered in my research and I never really got around to address it. Um, I, I ran across certain examples where scholars argue that certain scenes that happen late in the book are modeled after real life events. Like there's a, a specific character later in the book um, that scholars argue is a reflection of um, certain characters that were widely reported as appearing in urban riots in the 1830s. Um, so that's beyond the scope of part one. But there, there's some evidence that he's like, you know, he always claims I have the story in mind from the very start and I just keep telling it. But there's actually pretty good evidence that he's responding to, oh, this is an idea I got from from things that happened in the city, um, you know, last year or something like that. Um, as far as long-term trends, um, I think one we could point to is the rise in popularity of antiheroes. So, again, to go back to the Kabuki theater. Um, in the 1820s in particular, if, I'm, if I have my dates right, we see a real boom in the kizewa mono, so often horror or dirty realism, we might call it in a different context. So uh, stories that focus on bad people doing bad things. So Siakairan, the famous kabuki horror play, is, is kind of partly about the ghost story that happens in the end, but it's kind of partly just about this really nasty samurai husband who does all these horrible things. Um, and that kind of story really has a vogue um, in this period. And that's kind of starting after Bakin is into the serialization of this, but we start to see characters that are reminiscent of um, those trends. And we start to see like, there's this one, um, well, uh, uh, type of female character that, that in the Meiji period gets to be called the dokufu or poison woman character trope, sort of a femme fatale. Um, and this is this really has a vogue in the early to mid Meiji period. Um, that's anticipated by some characters that appear in later um, sections of Eight Dogs. So this is probably him noticing what kind of characters are becoming popular and deciding to work those in to the story. 
That that is another very interesting point that you just made. Um, I think recently in the uh, studies of Japanese literature, pre-modern literature, we have so many amazing works that point to these interesting facts. Interesting, I guess, um, in 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 Western literature terms, they can be called tropes. Um, that these tropes. They they were never really discussed in depth in literary studies, because literature has for so long been dominated by studies of Western language literary works. Um, but now that we actually look into these pre-modern Japanese um, fiction works. And we can see all these amazing things that pre-modern, well, early modern authors were do- doing with it. Um, it's quite, it adds to this new perspective to the entire literary study field. So in your previous book, uh, one of my favorite books, by the way, uh, Good Docs, uh, Edification, Entertainment, and Kyokute Bakin's Nanso Satomi Hakkenden, which is this uh, book, Eight Dogs, you discussed the role of this work, A Dogs, in prefiguring early modern individualism in Japan. Could you talk more from this perspective? Yeah, um, that was something I sort of get into in the conclusion of that book. And I felt at the time that I was probably going out on a little bit of a limb there, and I wasn't sure how far I wanted to push that. But... Uh, you know, that's partly a response to, you know, and I, I mentioned this in the book, partly a response to scholars like Karatani Kojin, who are sort of reifying this divide between pre-modern and modern and arguing that all, you know, we're kind of trapped by the post-Genbunichi world and we can't really, you know, any, any interiority that we perceive in pre-modern literature is, is just an illusion because interiority itself is entirely a function of the Genbunichi created literary space and modern literary tropes. It's all, you know, we can't, we can't get past that essentially, right? And that's certainly persuasive and it has its own logic, but it really makes it hard to talk about the past. And it's a, so it, in a way, I and I think several other scholars of early modern literature are trying to find ways to think past that. Um, so that's one thing that was a response to. Another thing I was trying to gesture to was um, how long a shadow eight dogs cast into the late 19th century. It remained really, really popular through the early decades of Meiji. And it wasn't really until until, until the language changed enough that eight dogs became difficult to read that it lost its popular readership. And it seems to have been particularly popular among uh, the popular rights movements of the early Meiji period. Um, and again, I, I, I haven't focused as much as I should on reception in Meiji period, but it really does seem that certain aspects of these characters resonate in a particular way with Meiji readers, um, which is the way the, the Bakin might not have anticipated or might not have intended, right? He's writing in a period of a, a social status system that's certainly breaking down, but that it still has staying power and still, uh, you know, is a reality in the lives of, of him and his readers. 
Um, but it has this popularity in this period when that social status system is is radically breaking down, if not swept away entirely. He's got these heroes who are in many ways outside the status system, right? So if one argues, as many people do, that a person's identity in the Tokugawa period was a function of one's place in the status system, he's creating these eight characters who don't have a place in the status system or who are crossing, you know, that they they in some ways are without a place and in some ways have too much of a place. They're kind of overdetermined in, in the narrow sense of that term, where they're, they're, there's so many contradictory forces pulling on their identity that they sort of, I mean, I think that's where I come down to. They are sort of individuals. They're sort of left to their own moral sense and their own decision about what is right and wrong because they don't have a secure place, right? And he's really pushing that vision of the hero for most of the length of this work. And that seems to be what resonates a lot with these later generations of readers in early Meiji. Um, and another way to, to, I guess, put this is the, the scene that I do a close reading of in the monograph to, to dramatize that is all about a moral quandary. And it's the kind of thing you might, it would be very easy to stage in a sense, because it's basically a character who's just isolated debating within himself what's the right course of action, but it's very clearly something that's happening inside his head because there's somebody in the next room that he can't be overheard by, so he's having to keep it all quiet. And, you know, it's the the terms of his debate within himself are squarely within the early modern moral universe, and yet his sort of soul-searching, his almost Hamlet-like quandary and just the, the focus on him as someone who's reasoning his way through these, these, these conflicts seems to resonate with later, later developments in, in 19th century fiction, at least from my perspective. Yeah, and when you describe it like that, it sounds it makes uh, a dark sound really modern. Modern in a sense that you know these characters they are not just um, the the author there is not only describing things he's making his protagonists looking internally for their identity which is sounds like what meiji period um literary critiques were looking for but then i thought it was quite funny when they um heavily criticized uh bucking and his contemporary writers for um for being too heavy on the didactic part I always thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the big obstacle for Hakenden's modern reception, right? Is because Tsubou Shoyo right, makes it the cornerstone of his critique of pre-modern fiction in Shosei Shinzui, right? So, so Hakenden has this, or Eight Dogs has this secondary significance, which for many people is its primary significance. You know, aside from whatever it's doing as a story, it's also this thing that modern literature defines itself against right um which is a whole other story but that's another reason why i decided to look at this because i feel like we we should understand what modern literature was rejecting right yeah that's that's amazing and that reminds me of one of another one of our previous episodes with dr daniel Poch, who talked about um the the role the importance actually the importance of human emotions on ninja in early modern uh, Japanese fiction that was dismissed by um, the so-called modernists uh, thinkers. 
So uh, again, listeners, if you are interested, uh, you can go back to our episode. I think back in April or May with Dr. Daniel Park. But for this uh, translation work, you mentioned there you you plan on uh, translating a total of eight parts. Is that correct? Um, So during this whole process, this um, very long process, how was how was your um, procedure like? What parts did you enjoy the most, and what difficulties did you come across? Yeah, well, uh, the the major difficulty, unsurprisingly, is the length. I mean, I've done other translation projects before. You know, I've translated a few modern novels. Uh, but those are the kind of things I could set aside a summer and set up a schedule and complete it. This one I've been working on since 2007, I think, is when I first decided I was going to start translating. And I am now in chapter 180. I'm probably not going to finish the draft until next summer. But this means I've been working on it for, I don't even want to, what, is that 14 years now? Um, so just the the knowledge that this is going to go on forever, and uh, I've had to approach it in, with a very different mindset than anything else. Um, but aside from that, you know, the the parts that I enjoy have enjoyed most have been the the most fun parts of the story. Parts that have been challenging have been it gets a little repetitive sometimes. Um, I I think it's a brilliant novel, but it's not uniformly perfect. There are definitely slow parts and there's definitely fast parts. Um, It culminates with this massive war on three fronts that takes up, uh, I can't remember, 10 to 20 chapters. Um, Very similar to some of the the fighting in the longer, in the later sections of the longer version of the water margin. Um, That got a little bit repetitive. Endless battle scenes, descriptions of troops moving here, troops moving there, siege here, siege there. That gets a little repetitive to translate. Um, Yeah. And then the other thing about the terms of challenges or what I found difficult is that there is no annotated edition of this in the original. A couple of years ago, an annotated translation, or sorry, I should say an annotated edition of the first 10 chapters appeared. Um, luckily, it appeared in time for me to consult it in the preparation of this volume. Um, but that's as far as that's gone, and I don't think it's going to go any farther. So for the vast majority of the work, um, there's modern editions, but no annotations. Uh, so unlike you know, if I was translating something like The Tale of Genji, I would have any number of modern editions with very detailed annotations of every piece of, um, you know, every allusion. Um, those don't exist for this. So when there's an allusion to a Chinese work, I've had to, to notice it and try to find it on my own. Uh, I'm sure I've missed a ton of them. Uh, so things like that. It's been a been kind of a challenge because there's no none of the standard apparatus or you know i've done a little bit of translation of ihara saikaku and there's very good scholarly editions with lots of annotations nothing like that for this so that's that's kind of a challenge as we're moving towards the end of a conversation i want to throw out one more uh difficult question for you Mm -hmm. 
So, as a previous English major, what kind of differences do you notice between this、uh, early modern Japanese fiction、uh, and a, say, a modern, say, say, a nineteenth-century Western language novel? That is,、uh, I love that question actually, because I've been spending a lot of my free time. Reading nineteenth-century, like I love Victorian fiction, and I've been really fascinated after reading Bakin to to read people like Walter Scott, or、um, I've been reading Wilkie Collins lately, the guy who wrote The Moonstone or The Woman in White,、um, Thomas Hardy, Dickens, and, and in some ways, you know, they're they're very different. The conventions of the Victorian novel in England are are extremely different from the conventions of Eight Dogs.、Um, For one thing, there are many more fantasy elements in Hakenden than there are in most Victorian fiction. There are some fantasy elements in Walter Scott, but、um, in some ways, you could argue that this is closer to more like a Gothic piece of Gothic fiction as opposed to a you know a high Victorian novel. Even though it's contemporary, he's really contemporary with people like Dickens.、Um, but there's a lot of similarities as well. I've I've been really astonished.、Um, You know the the the, the serialization. He's serializing once a year, as opposed to once a month or once every other month with Victorian fiction. So the pace of serialization is different. They have newspapers and magazines when no such thing existed in Japan. So there's certainly differences like that. But there's a there's a、uh, there's similarities in in in. Well, I think Jonathan Zwicker actually discussed this. Some in his book practices of the sentimental imagination. There's kind of like this Victorian emphasis on sentiment, and you know Daniel Polk discussed this as well, right? This the ninja. There's there's kind of a recognizable sense of melodrama. You know, I don't want to go too far with this. I'm not really a comparatist in that sense, but I think Victorian English audiences might have responded to some of the melodramatic presentation of emotion that Bakin indulges in, and some of his contemporaries, and vice versa. I think some of the things. You know the specific natures of the dilemmas that Dickens's characters face would have been strange to Bakin's readers, and yet the heightened emotion or the the exaggerated comic、um, nature of some of the characters they probably would have responded to. The nature of humor, like if you read Dickens, his characters will often have this really broadly allegorical name, which is supposed to tip us off to the kind of human foibles that character is meant to. Satirize and Bakin uses the exact same device over and over again. Names have meanings, and we're supposed to laugh at the kind of image a certain character's name conjures up.、Um, or the yeah, I, I could go on about this, but I, I find you know, not being a comparatist, I never know how far to push this, but I, I really find interesting echoes between the two. It definitely is. I totally agree.、Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. To talk about your new book. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Excellent questions and a lot of fun to talk about this. And to our listeners,、um, if you're interested in melodrama, or if you're mentally prepared to read seven more volumes of this translation, make sure you check out、uh, Dr. Glenn Wally's Eight Dogs or Hakenden, Part One, an ill-considered jest. This is Jeannie from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you in next episode.